0: Thank you and uh, welcome everybody to the Sport and Leisure History Seminar brought to you by the British Society of Sport History and the Institute of Historical Research. Today's speaker is Dr. Connor Heffernan. Hi, Connor. Hello. Connor is a lecturer in uh, Sociology of Sports at Ulster University and he's written numerous articles on sport and physical culture and he has a new book out called The History of Physical Culture which is available now from Common Ground Networks. And I believe it's a prize-winning book now as well. Um, Connor has been running the Physical Culture Study website for 10 years now. And so he publishes on there regularly as well, uh, kind of think pieces and uh, I guess work in progress. And he is also the supremo of the (laughs) BSSH, newly inaugurated in 2022. And today Connor is talking about image and heavy burden and the women's weightlifting and 1980s eighties American media. So take it away, Connor.
1: Perfect. So Jeff, thank you so much for inviting me to do this and uh, and hosting it. Thank you to everyone for showing up. And um, the only other thing that is perhaps obvious, I'm also a collector of early nineties wrestling figures. So if anyone has a giant Gonzalez Hasbro figure that they want to sell me, do get in touch. Apart from wrestling. I'm also interested in weightlifting, which I know a, a a triple threat or a double threat. And today I'm going to be talking about, if I can find it, women's weightlifting in 1980s America. So can everyone see my screen? Got a thumbs up. Brilliant. And specifically what I'm going to be talking about today is media depictions of female American weightlifters during the 1980s. And before I, I suppose, jump into this fully, I just want to say that this research has been generously funded by the Olympic Study Center. I was fortunate enough to get a postgraduate slash early career researcher grant from them last year. So I was able to go over to Lausanne and visit their materials. I was also able to go over to the University of Texas, the H.J. Lutcher Stark Center, and then also the Olympic uh, Museum in Colorado proved very generous with their materials. So what I'm sharing with you today is a very small snippet of a much broader project looking at Olympic weightlifting for women in the United States from the early 1970s, when the first official competitions emerged, to the 2000 Sydney Olympics, when women's Olympic weightlifting becomes an Olympic sport. And this research has been very generously supported by the Olympic Studies Council, but then also by the USA Weightlifting Association, and a lot of former athletes and coaches and members have been very generous in giving their time and speaking with me as part of an oral history component of this. And I'm happy to talk either side of the bounds of the 1980s um, if people are interested in it. So the first thing that I'm going to say is I am aware that not everyone understands what Olympic weightlifting is, and that is absolutely okay. So what I have on the screen here are three separate exercises One of them you don't need to know about, but I wanted to bring it up because I'm a nerd for strength. So in the modern Olympic weightlifting sphere, there are two exercises executed here by current USA weightlifter, Maddie Rogers. They are the clean and jerk, which is shown on my left of the screen. I think it's your left. This is very much a visual feature for everyone who's listening back on a podcast. And on the top right, you see Maddie doing a snatch as well. And in both instances, you're pushing a heavy barbell overhead but the way that you do it is different. And the bottom right, you're seeing a man nearly breaking his back by pushing a barbell overhead. That is the old military press, which used to be an Olympic lift, but was um, taken out of the Olympics in 1972 because people were bending backwards to ridiculous proportions to press it overhead. So Olympic weightlifting, two lifts, pushing the barbell overhead, but doing it in a different way. So here is Katie at the time, Katie Nye, showing you the snatch. And then the clean and jerk as well so the snatch is one fluid movement to get the barbell overhead the clean and jerk is two separate movements what bringing the barbell
0: from Kate
1: to your cut, to your clavicle and then bringing the, and then pushing the barbell overhead i was actually re re-entering my love of olympic weightlifting last summer as part of this research before sciatica reminded me that i'm an old man at heart so with those things out of the way my argument today is that women's weightlifting in the united states Suffered from a public ignorance about the sport that was fueled by concerns around masculine women and the feminist movement. And this had ramifications for Olympic weightlifting sport, uh, sporting acceptance for decades. So, even though we're looking at the 1980s, a lot of the issues highlighted today also plagued in the 1990s, early 90s, and even arguably today. And I think the thing that interests me about women's Olympic weightlifting is A, it's understudied. There's a lot of good research on women's bodybuilding during this time. Women's powerlifting. Not so much, but there is something there, but women's Olympic weightlifting has been sort of fundamentally ignored in a lot of different avenues. And there are a lot of nuances to women's Olympic weightlifting, which I think make it you know, deserving of study and also not least because of the efforts people made. So my big grandstand statement is that concerns about masculine, the masculinization of women and also concerns about the uh, feminist movement of the 1970s or the 1980s sort of pigeonholed women's Olympic weightlifting into into a very small box, which had ramifications for getting national, international, and then Olympic acceptance. Now, in today's presentation, in today's talk, or whenever you're listening to it, uh, today's the 15th of May, 2023, you never know when people listen back to podcasts. We're going to be talking about the history of Olympic weightlifting for men and for women. We're going to explore efforts at legitimizing women's Olympic weightlifting through the media and through reporting in the 1980s. And we're going to scrutinize the media's attention of women's Olympic weightlifting, because I think it's important to think about there was a movement within Olympic weightlifting to legitimize the sport, but the much more important effort was outside of the sport because they were trying to gain broader social and sporting acceptance. So we're going to look at those outer layers in this talk. Now, I've thrown a Official timeline of women's Olympic weightlifting on the slide here. The first, I suppose, legitimate competition uh, actually began in 1943. We had this brief surge of interest in women's Olympic weightlifting in the 1940s, 1950s, which effectively died off then until the 1970s. It's sort of this gaping chasm within this era. And this is part of a broader issue with women's physical culture and physical activity during this time. And for anyone who's interested in it, I would recommend, and I'm currently reviewing it, uh, Fit Nation by Natalia uh Pretzella. It's a very good book just published, which talks about women's physical culture and fitness in the United States. So if you're interested in that sort of 50s to 70s period, I'd recommend Fit Nation. So what we're looking at really is the growing interest in the 1970s up until that 1987 World Weightlifting Championship. And if you want three important dates to hold on to, I think the first is 1976. This is the first national co- or the first recognized competition in the new era. We'll go with 1981 for the first women's national championships in the United States, and then 1987 for the first World Weightlifting Championship. And this is important because if we think in 1981, the US starts to hold national competitions. By 1987, we have international competitions. And that's bringing in a number of different countries, over 200 athletes, to the United States to compete. So I've decided to section off my presentation very much like a classy you know, film noir, or maybe even a Tarantino-style movie where we split it up into acts. So this is act one, the history. There's no ominous music on this. It's just my uh, Baroque Irish tones. So the first thing that I'm going to say is Olympic weightlifting in the men's division is one of the oldest Olympic sports. You know, it's occurred at the 1896 Athens Olympics. It had a sort of checkered history prior to the Great War, where it appeared in some Olympics but didn't appear in others. But the first Olympic Games had weightlifting at it. The first international weightlifting event happened in London in 1891. I am just speaking about the men's divisions. So the first sort of iterations of the modern sport that we know as Olympic weightlifting hold their origins in 1891 and 1896. And one of the great contrasts and dichotomies in the history of women's Olympic weightlifting is it's 1896 for the men's game, or the men's division, and it's 2000 for the women's division. That's just something to bear in mind. Now, a luddite or a troglodyte might say, "Well, maybe women weren't, you know, lifting weights in the late 1800s," but of course, we know that that simply isn't true. Jan Todd has done some incredible work on the origins of women's sort of weight training in general in the 1800s and 1900s. And two female athletes of note that she's spoken about are Katie Sandrina on the left of your slide and Minerva on the right of your slide. Now, both of these individuals are strong women. You know, they're performers, they were strength performers in the 1890s and early 1900s. They... Both had international renown, Katie Sandwina in particular toured Europe and the United States. She was born in Germany in the mid to late 1800s, and they were revered for their strength and physical activity. Minerva in particular on the right of your screen is a really fascinating case because she can legitimately be seen as one of the first official female strength athletes. Richard K. Fox of the National Police Gazette, and that's maybe where other people know that name. He was a great patron of boxing and other sort of strength and endurance sports. Richard K. Fox was so impressed with Minerva's feats of strength that he offered her the opportunity to win a belt in weightlifting. So what Fox did is he pit Minerva against another female strong woman called Victorina, and the winner of this belt would win the first official weightlifting belt for women or the first official weightlifting championship for women and Minerva won that championship now she didn't really defend it uh, on any sort of substantive scale but she did win an official at that time weightlifting competition the same era as men's Olympic weightlifting is going on there was different types of weightlifting that they were doing but we had female champions during this era and Sandwina you know I'm not going to spoil it Little breadcrumb with sandwina. Hold on to that name because it's going to become important when we get to the 1980s. Now, I'm I'm going to do a whistle-stop tour of women's Olympic weightlifting or women's lifting in general. And the next stop on that tour is Abby, or as she was affectionately known, which would now be a very problematic nickname for a woman, Pudgy Stockton. So in the 1940s and 1950s, we have a rise of interest in Venice Beach, California, Muscle Beach sort of lifestyle Uh, sports. So Pudgy Stockton, as she was known, became very famous for being a hand balancer and weightlifter on Muscle Beach on the West Coast of the United States in the 1940s, and 1950s. Pudgy and her husband Les were often featured in national and at times international newspapers about Muscle Beach. And Pudgy was praised because she was a strong woman. She was praised because she would do Olympic lifts that the men were doing at that time. And she would often pose for strength and fitness magazines in the United States. And Pudgy serves a sort of trifold importance in the history of women's Olympic weightlifting. So in the first instance, she was a point of inspiration for hundreds of thousands of women who came after her. Jan Todd, who I've you know previously mentioned, a, f- a fabulous powerlifter, a f- even more fabulous, in many cases, historian, cited Pudgy Stockton as you know, an inspiration for her when she went into powerlifting in the 1970s. And countless other women have cited Pudgy as a point of inspiration. She was also a point of information. You see, in 1944, Bob Hoffman of York Barbell who was also the editor of Strength and Health Magazine, America's premier weightlifting magazine, he offered Pudgy a column within Strength and Health Magazine. Now, cleverly known as the barbells column. So a barbell is something you press overhead for people who can't see the slide. This is spelled B-A-R-B-E-L-L-E-S. I do love a good pun, if nothing else. The Barbells column, which was written by Pudgy Stockton on a regular basis for Strength and Health magazine, it was a point of information for women. Pudgy would talk about training, lifting weights. It was a point of pride for women. Women would submit images of themselves to Pudgy to show this is how I've changed my physique through Olympic weightlifting. This is how I've changed my physique through weight training. So it was one of the first major and regular sites of weight training information directed to women, more importantly, by women. So Pudgy, her second point of importance is as a point of information. Pudgy is also a point of organization. If you cast your minds back to the timeline I showed you, you would have seen 1940s Pudgy's contests uh, somewhere along that uh, pathway. Pudgy helped to organize several weightlifting competitions for women in the 1940s. These were Olympic competitions. Going one better, Pudgy also managed to get AAU recognition of some of these competitions, so the AAU, the Amateur Athletic Union, were the sporting body in the United States during that time, which oversaw Olympic weightlifting. So Pudgy was a point of inspiration, information, and also organization. And that threefold rhyming just came to me, and I'm so very proud of that. So what I'm going to do is we've gone from Minerva in the 1890s or 1900s to Pudgy in the 40s and 50s. We're going to jump over into the 1970s. And there's a couple of different strands interlocking here, which I find so interesting, both sporting and social, but within physical culture, within sport in general, that really come together to provide a bedrock for the emergence of women's weightlifting in the United States. Now, the first most important socially and sporting wise and educationally and in so many different ways was the passing of the Title IX Act in the United States and Title IX um, prevented, pardon me, discrimination on the basis of gender within educational settings. And one of the, I suppose, genius points of Title IX is that it also applied to funding for sport within the United States. And this is not to say that once Title IX was passed in the early uh, 1970s, that every high school and university began to equally fund women's sports to the same point as men's sports. But it did provide a pathway for an increase of funding, but also an increase of interest in women's sport at both a high school and a collegiate level. And this is going to be important because many of the first generation of female weightlifters came through funded programs within high schools and within universities that were not available to their predecessors in the 1960s. And many women went through these systems and then at college, having gone through, say, an athletics program, then pivoted over into weight training. So a lot of women were introduced to sport in a major way in the 70s through the passing of Title IX. There was also, of course, the feminist movement, which, when I taught it to students in Texas in a strength context, was anything you can do, I can do better, or anything you can lift, I can lift heavier, in the context of sport and physical culture. But there is a sense of, you know, women busting into new opportunities, especially in a sporting sense, and actually targeting gender discrimination in a way that wouldn't have been pro- possible in the '50s and '60s. And then at a social level, interestingly, not just a physical culture or strength level, was a broader valorization of strength in the 1970s. So I have in the photo there, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who became you know, nationally and internationally famous through a series of movies. First, Stay Hungry, which was published or produced in the late 1970s, and then Pumping Iron, a documentary about bodybuilding, which is Alan Klein and a generation of sociologists in the 80s and 90s have shown created an influx of men into gymnasiums across the United States and around the world because strength and muscularity no longer became a sort of marginal subculture, but bust into the mainstream in a very interesting way. Now, in a sporting sense, we also have to look at how the US weightlifting team was doing in the 70s and 80s. Now, the truth is not very well, but the importance of that is they had had a high point of success. As Dr. John Fair, who is a doyen of studies on Olympic weightlifting, especially in the United States, and to do plug number two, John has just published a book on Tommy Kono, The Life of America's Greatest Weightlifter, and that's Tommy Kono shown on the left. John is one of my favorite writers, so I would encourage everyone to read that book. In the 1940s and 1950s, America experiences its golden age of Olympic weightlifting. Funded by Bob Hoffman of York Barbell, the U.S. men's Olympic weightlifting team wins dozens of gold, silver and bronze medals at both Olympic Games and World Weightlifting Championships. And this is important because it's sort of a high point in Olympic weightlifting in the United States. They've yet to replicate the success, you know, 60 or 70 years after the fact, but it created a culture of interest in Olympic weightlifting within the United States. It was never particularly popular to the extent that bodybuilding and later powerlifting became, but it created these sort of knowledge hot points of Olympic weightlifting around the United States, some of which would then pivot into supporting women when they took to Olympic weightlifting. We also have Strength and Health magazine, which I've previously mentioned, which was sort of had an evangelical zeal for Olympic weightlifting in the 1950s, 60s and early 70s. So not only was Bob Hoffman funding, you know, elite Olympic weightlifting in the United States, he was also proselytizing Olympic weightlifting in the United States. And I raise this point because John Todd, Terry Todd, and Jason Shirley's book, *The Invention of Strength Training*, it's actually behind me on the uh, board here, but I'm not or on the bookshelf. But I'm not going to take it out because it will take too long. My stacking system is not particularly good, if I'm being honest. But as Jason. Shirley, Jan Todd and Terry Todd have shown in the 50s and 60s, Bob Hoffman began to push for U.S. high schools to incorporate weightlifting into their ranks and also U.S. prisons and also, you know, any U.S. social club. He tried to push Olympic weightlifting throughout the United States. And I raise these just because it meant that a lot of women who came to weight training in the 70s and 80s could rely on a spouse, a partner, a, husband, uh, a father, an uncle, you know, a friend of a friend who had an interest or a knowledge of Olympic weightlifting. We also then, as a final point of history, have a broader democratization of strength and physical activity for women. So the 1970s is also an era when U.S. uh, women begin to enter powerlifting in major droves. And this is an interesting development because powerlifting as a sport is only really legitimized in the 1960s. Within a decade, you have a huge influx of women into American powerlifting. We also have the creation of women's bodybuilding in really the late 1970s, early 1980s. We also have, of course, the Jane Fonda workout craze. And I just raise this because it increased the number of women who are entering into gymnasiums, the number of women who are lifting weights, or the number of women who are engaging in exercise and speaking to some of the women from this era. And again, I'm very thankful to those women. It was interesting that some of them came through you know, high schools and colleges and then went into Olympic weightlifting. Some of them tried their hands at powerlifting, bodybuilding, not for them came over to weightlifting. Some of them started off with a Jane Fonda workout tape and then went into Olympic weightlifting, et cetera. So there, especially in these early decades, there was no one path into Olympic weightlifting for women. So it's important to look at a lot of these cross curves which sort of stacked over and on top of each other. Act two. so our takeaways here because if studies are to be believed, we all have the attention spans of goldfish. Weightlifting as a sport for men has its origins in 1891, First World Weightlifting Championship, and Gerardo Benini's article on that is fantastic. We have the first Olympics in 1896 in Athens had Olympic weightlifting. We get to the 1970s, and we don't have any form of recognized competitions for women. We have a few iterations in the 1940s, but we only actually start to get stirrings of women entering into Olympic weightlifting in the late 1970s and early 1980s. We do not have our first national weightlifting championship for women until 1981, first world championship until 1987, first Olympics until 2000, but that's out of the arena tonight. We start to get articles on women entering Olympic weightlifting in the mid to late 1970s. And the first thing to say, and this continues really until 2000 when the US entered the Sydney Olympics, is the huge confusion especially on the part of male journalists, as to what weightlifting actually is. So for people listening to this at a later date, I have a slide here which says, you know, weightlifter, bodybuilder, powerlifter, CrossFit athlete. We'll ignore the CrossFit athlete, not for any prejudices on my part, but because CrossFit didn't exist until the 2000s. From the mid-1970s until the 2000 games, American journalists consistently showed an incredible ignorance as to what weightlifting is. And what I mean by this is when you look at articles, you will see bodybuilding being confused with weightlifting. You'll see powerlifting being confused with weightlifting. Because weightlifting is such a general term, you know, oh, oh, he does weightlifting in the gym or she does weightlifting in the gym. The actual specific and correct use of it, weightlifting as in Olympic weightlifting, is often lost in articles. So going through, you know, I've gone through 800 plus articles from this era. And so many of them say, you know, women's weightlifting on the rise, but really what they're talking about is bodybuilding or powerlifting or even just women entering a gym for the first time. And this, although it's you know an understandable mistake, especially because all of these sports are relatively new, especially for women, or they're just starting to get mainstream uh, attention or attraction, it does, however, create a lot of confusion around what weightlifting is. And this is important because many of the women that I spoke to would say that when they told friends, family members, spouses, you know, work colleagues, et cetera, that they weight lifted, a lot of them thought they were going to be going into bodybuilding. A lot of them thought they were going into powerlifting. There was a general ignorance around what the sport was and entailed. And that also at times prevented women from entering the sport because they didn't want to look like a bodybuilder or they didn't want to do the training that they thought a powerlifter did. So the first thing is there was a huge ignorance around when to correctly use the term weightlifting. The next and arguably most important thing is that when they correctly cited what weightlifting was, they immediately and journalists immediately went to this idea that weightlifting would masculinize women. Now, a lot of comparisons, actually a staggering number of comparisons from the late 70s all the way through the 80s, were journalists making parallels between the East German swim team and what they thought Olympic weightlifting would do to female athletes. Now, for anyone who is unfamiliar, we know that the East German athletes, uh, the female swimmers of the East German team during this era were using anabolic steroids, oftentimes against their knowledge or unknown to them or oftentimes against their consent, and that's a whole different issue that came to light in the early 1970s. But there were many jokes made in the 1970s and 80s and even the 90s about the manly, the manly swimmers, pardon me, of the East German swim team. There was a huge parallel made between the swim team and what people thought Olympic weightlifting would do to women. There was also a broader concern because the typical image of the US, of an Olympic weightlifter in the United States during that era was the heavyweight lifter, you know, a very large, very tall, very heavy, rotund man, hair on his chest and back. That was a big issue for them. The hairy chest kept coming up again and again, pressing freakish amounts of weight overhead. And there is a broader issue in this, which I'll, I'll talk about in a few slides time. But the first thing to say is there was a huge concern, a moral panic even, if one can go so far, that this would make women very masculine, that Olympic weightlifting women very manly. And what's really interesting to say about this is that the same concerns were found a lot of times in discourses around women's powerlifting. Not the same until uh, in women's bodybuilding, until really the late 1980s, early 1990s, when anabolic steroid use became more problematic. But almost immediately, there was this extra issue of the East German parallels. And that's because women's Olympic weightlifting had ties to the Olympics. It wasn't yet an Olympic sport, but it was something that was done at the Olympics. So we had this sort of counterweight, the straw woman argument, for want of a better phrase, that if you do that, you'll look like the East German team who all look at men, who all look like men, pardon me. There was also a sort of vapid connection between women's Olympic weightlifting and the feminist movement. And it was a sort of derogatory these women are invading a male space just to prove it to the others that they can do this but they're not really interested they don't really get what what weightlifting is all about and this is something that was found in both weightlifting magazines and then broader national new, newspapers and there was also an intense focus on women's weight and correct femininity so where women female weightlifters pardon me were praised during this era It was when they were light weightlifters, when they could say things like, you wouldn't know it to look at me, but I am an Olympic weightlifter. Lots of people think that weightlifting will make you big and strong, but look at me. You wouldn't tell I'm this strong, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a privileging of certain body types within this. And there's an incredible, even at times when there's a positive comment made about um, women's weightlifting in the United States, there is a continual reference to a sort of Victorian separate spheres element of this, you know, where, where men are allowed to be aggressive, intense, and focused on, on the weightlifting platform. They're allowed to lift freakish amounts of weight. Women are continually made with reference to their femininity and a very normative femininity. So for anyone uh, listening or for anyone who has difficulty reading it, I have an article from Rich Tosh, that national journalists at the time. There's nothing remarkable about Dana Furman, one of the great women lifters of that time, except that the five foot brunette could with her bare hands jerk the sink out of your kitchen, along with most of the galvanized steel plumbing. And this is part of a broader discourse. Jan Todd has a wonderful article on Katie Sandwina in the early 1900s, I think it was 1911, to be exact, where articles around Sandwina would talk about, she's so strong, but such a wonderful mother. She's big and large, but you couldn't tell because of her silhouette, which is so beautiful. So we have this you know, continual sort of acknowledgement, but forcing it back into a very rigid understanding of femininity and what women can do. Now, the next wave of focus and the next wave of Um, Articles, especially from the like 1981 first national championship to about 1985, was that weightlifting was quote unquote, no longer a male stronghold, pardon me. So there was a repeated focus on the oddity of women in the gym. And the important thing to say on this point is that Olympic weightlifting gyms, and say this is someone who loves frequenting them, are odd spaces. They're different from commercial gyms. Weightlifting gyms, especially in the United States during that time were often very small facilities. They would have typically, you know, typically, if not predominantly, just had weightlifting platforms and then a few dumbbells or a few barbells. They typically weren't the most inviting or welcoming of spaces for individuals. So there was a focus on the repeated oddity of women in these very specialized, you know, sort of subculture uh, types of gyms. So there was a repeated focus on it was so strange, and there was repeated interviews with women and also their partners or their or their fathers, whoever brought them into these gyms of so and so effectively having to vouch for their wife, their sister, their friend being in this space, and there was a sense that the cultural capital of the male partner was often needed to create some semblance of acceptance for female lifters, and this is something that is continually. Uh, said and even when speaking to some of the women from the 1980s and early 1990s, sort of men had to vouch for them to be in these hyper-masculine spaces. There was also, and I think this is probably reflective of the paucity of women's lifting during this time, a lot of discussion around intergender contests during this point. So the way weightlifting is done, similar to say boxing or, you know, MMA or wrestling, it's done by weight classes. You know, there's say, uh, under 64 kilos, you know, and under 84 kilos, and over 84 kilos, whatever the case may be. When women began to enter into competitions, regional competitions as opposed to nationwide competitions, they were often placed in the same weight classes, so in the same competitions as adolescents or teenagers, because a lot of the women, you know, a fully grown adult woman at the time, could often be in the same division as an adolescent teenager, or a male uh, teenager, during that era. So there was a lot of a lot of conversations around the fact that, you know, these women were coming into men's weightlifting competitions. They weren't wanted. They didn't have women's divisions. So they were forced to compete against the teenagers. And rather than seeing this as a travesty to the idea of competition and the idea of, um, you know, equal sports for, for everyone involved, This is often seen as a slight against the women, as in, you know, they're competing against our teenagers, as opposed to we're so myopic, we haven't created a women's division, uh, you know, despite women entering into our competitions. So there was a lot of uh, conversation. And then by the end of the 1980s, you get women's own thoughts on this, which is quite interesting, where a lot of the women in later years in the decade would say, you know, this was awkward, this was uncomfortable, this was awful, but we did it anyway, because we love the sport. And it's interesting that these comments only come out after 1987, when we have world weightlifting championships and women's divisions have become much more commonplace around the U.S. Prior to 1987, there's a lot of conversation around women competing against teenagers, but without the voices of the women themselves. By the time we get post-1985, we start to see more and more comments on yearly growth. Jim Schmitz, a wonderful American weightlifting coach and a strong advocate for women's lifting in the United States, is often quoted from 1985 onwards, talking about a rapid increase of, of female lifters. Bearing in mind, Olympic weightlifting for women was quite a small sport, so they could say things like it's doubled since last year, but that could be 40 to 80 or 80 to 160. It's a substantial jump, but it's not, you know, volume wise, it's, it's not overwhelming for the sport. And then there was constant comparisons to their male counterparts, but I think that's probably obvious enough. And what I think was the most unsettling uh, and distressing thing uh, to read uh, during this research, and certainly to listen to female lifters tell me about it, was how the lengths male judges and officials went to to make women, well as uncomfortable in competition. So I have a quote here from Mabel Rader, one of the I like, you know, energize our bunnies for want of a better phrase of American physical culture during the 20th century. Mabel Raiders, I think, the only woman on record to be an official for U.S. weightlifting and U.S. powerlifting, and also to be very important and influential in U.S. bodybuilding. Herself and her husband Perry Rader, ran Ironman magazine. Mabel was respected across three sports. To be respected within one of these sports is an accomplishment. To be expected respected across three of these sports is to be, you know, downright inconceivable. But such was her dynamism. I have a quote here from Mabel Raider, which says, "You know, the first women competing were weighed in the nude, like the men, before male judges." I think that at that time men were a little resentful of women getting in, and they didn't want to make it easy for them. And speaking to a lot of female lifters during this time. This was commonplace. Now, it was seen as, well, this is what the men had to do, so this is what we had to do. But it was clear that there was a, you know, an effort in some regional competitions to make women uncomfortable. Now, it could be we don't have any divisions for you, compete against the teenagers, or it could be you need to be weighed in the nude like the men do before male judges. Oftentimes, there was no other women present at these competitions. A lot of red flags in a lot of, in a lot of ways what's interesting about the coverage of this is up until really 1988, 1989, these things are seen as unproblematic. Even when Mabel Raider's quote is taken here, the journalist reporting on Mabel's quote effectively explains this away as, well, this is just how the sport is done. This isn't seen as a great expose or a great gotcha for weightlifting in the US. This isn't, a, oh my God, look at these you know, imbalances of power that are occurring within the sport. This is just, look at what's happening. This is just how it is. So, as you can see, we're starting to get many different threads of this, and I suppose we could you know, um, split it very easily into support and unsupport, but you know there, there's a lot more nuance going on. But I think there's something interesting and I'll, I'll use a, I'll make a comparison to George Bush because why not? Everyone remembers the mission accomplished um, banner he had across the boat during the Iraq and Afghanistan war. There's a sense of a rolling out of that banner very quickly within the U.S. when it comes to women's Olympic weightlifting, because we have women entering competitions in the mid-1970s. We was the first national competition in 1981. We was the first world weightlifting championship in Daytona Beach in Florida in 1987. By 1986, there's effectively a, you know, a mission accomplished banner rolled out by the U.S. Weightlifting Federation when they're speaking to journalists, but also International Weightlifting Federation, the, international board of weightlifting when they're speaking to journalists so there's a sense from 1986 1987 especially onwards where they say well women now have an international competition the world weightlifting championships for women it's only a matter of time before it becomes olympic sport and this you know often becomes like a mantra you know the that this has already been completed all you have to do now is wait it's all being taken care of and this is important once we roll into the 90s, because you've got a sort of official line of, well, this is all happening, just wait your turn, mission accomplished. But for the athletes themselves, this builds a huge amount of resentment. And what I have here is an image from the 1996 Olympic Games, which are held in Atlanta in the United States, where a number of female weightlifters are sitting, watching the men compete. And they have a banner, or a banner pardon me, asking, where are the female weightlifters, or where are the women weightlifters? And that's because from 1988 onwards, you keep getting talks that, oh, it's coming in the 92 Olympics in Barcelona. Oh, it's definitely coming to Atlanta, Georgia, because America is the birthplace of women's weightlifting. The first world championships were held there. The best American weightlifting gym for women Coffee's gym is in Georgia. It'll definitely 100% don't even worry about it being the 96 Olympics in Atlanta. We promise it's definitely coming in Sydney. I know we said 92 was going to happen. I know we said 96 was going to happen. It's definitely going to happen in 2000. So there is a continual line, both within the media and also within weightlifting circles that it's mission accomplished. We got our national championship in America, the first national championship of its kind for women. We have our first world weightlifting championship in 87. The Olympics is just around the corner. We went from no contest in 1975 to international competition by 1987 and it's sort of this Whiggish, you know we're continually on a line of progression just sit back and enjoy message or rhetoric that comes out in a lot of these articles and then the last one of the last things and pardon me i'll just pause this is that women have done it for want of a better phrase they've proven that they can be as strong as men. So what I'm about to show you in a moment's time is Karen Marshall, one of the great superstars of women's weightlifting in the 1980s, cleaning and jerking pounds, 300, over 300 pounds, pardon me, over her head. And the narrative behind this story is that Katie Sanduina. I remember when I said, keep Katie Sanduina in your minds, this is, this is where we do a callback. If people have come in late. I showed a early 1900s female strong woman called Katie Sandwina. I said, keep her in the back of your mind. So the Guinness Book of World Records had Katie Sandwina as the strongest woman on record because she pressed 300 pounds over her head. Karen Marshall was told by a very influential men's weightlifting coach in the 1980s that no one will take your sport seriously because the all-time record in your sport was is held by someone who lived 80 years ago. So Karen in the 1980s, clean and jerks 303 pounds over her head. I think she gets to 307. I can't remember offhand. It's been a long day, and this is again seen as proof that women have made it. So I'll show the lift now, and it's an unofficial lift, I think, in the gym. For anyone wondering, I've started to do that with my son. He finds it very funny. Um, obviously not with you know an additional 290 pounds on him, but still, I, you know, it's it's fun for all involved. But the Karen Marshall lift, which is incredibly impressive, and it's, an incre- it's a lift that deserves recognition, but it's tied up in a rhetoric of almost completion for the sport. Karen has beaten Sandwina's record. We have a, weight, a world weightlifting championship. We have a national weightlifting championship. There's no, there's no other fights to fight. You know, um, as an Alexander, there are no more worlds to conquer, is sort of the rhetoric that comes around. And then as we go into the late 1980s, early 1990s, we start to get discussions around performance-enhancing drugs, and we start to get discussions around the impact that this will have on female weightlifters. And this is important because a lot of the rhetoric around weightlifting for women is that it would masculinize women. There is a lot of rhetoric comparing female weightlifters potentially to East German swimmers who you know, as it turned out, we're using performance of drugs again, a national and a personal tragedy in so many ways. But this is important because the reputation of weightlifting for men during the 1980s is effectively shot. So for those who are unaware, the first sport to double with anabolic steroids is Olympic weightlifting. In the late 1950s, uh, Dr. John Ziegler, the US Olympic weightlifting uh, medical doctor, sits down for a drink with his Russian counterpart, his the Russian medical doctor tells Ziegler about a new substance that he's giving his female or his male athletes, pardon me. Ziegler goes back to the United States, creates his own compound called Dianabol, begins to give that to Olympic weightlifters. So Olympic weightlifting is the first sport to dabble with performance enhancing drugs like anabolic steroids. By the 1980s, there are so many failed drug tests for Olympic weightlifting that there are conversations that it will be booted out of the Olympic Games. One, as a sidebar, which I just love sharing with people, I was in Lausanne looking at the IWF records. One Italian weightlifter claimed that his failed drug test was due to olive oil that an angry lover had spiked, which, as excuses go, has a certain amount of chutzpah, I think we have to say. But this is important because the broader reputation of Olympic weightlifting was impinging on acceptance of Olympic weightlifting for women, because there was a broader sense that there are definitely drugs in this sport. And we know this because every international competition has a drug failure in it. And this adds in the Olympic component to this, adds in a a broader fear of masculinization, a broader fear of doping, that oftentimes bodybuilding and powerlifting sort of got to fly under the radar. There wasn't as much scrutiny about uh, performance enhancing drugs within these sports. So, act three to begin to think more broadly about this. I think the first thing to say is that the broader feminist movement within the United States is clearly informing so many journalists reading of this. I think it's interesting when you actually look at a lot of the quotes from individuals, when you speak to some of the lifters. Now, a lot of them would not expressly see it as a feminist act that they were engaging in. A lot of them would have said at the time, a lot of them would say now that, you know, maybe this could be construed as a feminist act, but I just really enjoyed the sport. And I thought it was wrong that I wasn't allowed to compete in the national games or compete in a world weightlifting games and this is not to say that this is not an act of feminism going into these sports challenging these records creating new opportunities for women but rather there was a labeling of these efforts as feminist by typically male journalists and i think that did change the narrative around a lot of this there was a and I cannot see what I've written on that. There we go. There was a shift from curio to competitive. So what I mean by this is at the start of the 1980s, this was seen as curious, you know. Oh, look at this, you know, lone female lifter in a gym competing against teenagers, competing, you know, unofficially because we won't recognize her, to at least by the end of the 1980s, even with all of the problematic statements surrounding it, it was seen there was a legitimization of competitive sport for women. It was no longer curious that women were weightlifting in the same way by the late 1980s. There was still a lot of um, problematic journalism around it, but now they had a competition. They were no longer seen as a curio within the sport. They were seen as part of the sport. There was clearly a false base surrounding these articles because so many people didn't understand what Olympic weightlifting was. So many people made false linkages to performance and drugs, to the East German swim team, to the feminist movement. There were a lot of competing messages around this, very few of which actually had any parallel to the sport, them, to the sport itself. We also see a broader, as I was thinking more societally, issue. The first is the impact and scare around anabolic drugs. So we have, pardon me, in the United States, a clear moral panic around anabolic steroids in the late 1980s, early 1990s. This will culminate in the passing of the anabolic. Uh, Anabolic Steroids Control Act, but effectively sought to curb anabolic drug use within the United States because there were huge fears that professional athletes and high school students, again, predominantly men, if not exclusively men in these debates, were using anabolic steroids. So there's a broader concern around anabolic steroids first within weightlifting, but then within the United States in general, which is fueling concerns and criticisms of women's Olympic weightlifting. We have these competing forces of it being depicted as a feminist act while continually being put into a separate sphere of domesticity for women, even individuals like Karen Marshall. When you read reports of her and she had um, an incredible biography and continues to have an incredible biography. Thankfully, I, I hasten to add where she trained as nurse, then became a Wall Street broker and then became a broker of records. That pun sounded much better in my head. Anywho. But when people were reporting on Karen's 300-plus press overhead, it was continually the beautiful Karen Marshall. Oh, she may not look conventionally attractive is a a phrase that was used repeatedly in reports of Karen in the 1980s. At times, there was a speaking of her achievements outside the world of weightlifting, but there was a continual focus in talking about her as a wife, talking about her beauty as a woman, talking about her femininity. So we have, on the one hand, a pushing into a separate sphere. On the other hand, a pushing into the feminist movement. Pardon me. And what I would say then, because Connor figured out how to use Venn diagrams and his new software, we have these competing forces. So we have a passive ignorance around what weightlifting is, especially for women, being intersecting with the sexist structures of American sport and society during this era, but also clashing with a competitive praise. So there's a very weird sort of, you know, miasma around women's Olympic weightlifting, where there's an interest in people breaking records, people creating new competitions, people seeking to go to the Olympics, but there's a confusion around what the sport is. And there's also a clear and continual and ongoing effort to make sure that it is a feminine sport that is not impinging on women's femininity, as is understood through a male gaze, while at the same time, pushing women and encouraging women, or at least giving attention to women to be competitive. And these Structures continue into the late 1980s and into the 1990s themselves, all the way up to the 2000 games where we see women's Olympic weightlifting being introduced at Sydney. And the same messages revolve around this time. And this matters, I would say, because in the first instance, and I'm, so, I'm winding up now, we see that the treatment of these female athletes was, you know, broadly reflective of the broader treatment of women during this time. The sense of intruding into a male sphere, the sense of everything had to be a feminist act, the sense that even if you are you know, breaking traditional values, you still have to be thin, slim. You still have to be attractive as per beauty standard for white women during this era. So the first is women's Olympic weightlifting holds a wonderful mirror up to broader disputes and debates around women in society and in sport. We see the Sisyphean task that female athletes and administrators had to go through to legitimize the sport. And my research is both at an administrative and at an athlete level. But, you know, at every single impasse, there was a new form of barrier put up. And one of the most pervasive and corrosive barriers was this message of you have accomplished it. You have achieved it because you can see the momentum being taken out of public debates for women's lifting in the Olympics because they're being told this will happen eventually. And it's a very subtle, a very interesting power dynamic of keeping that movement subjugated. And the last is that we see a stagnancy in debates around women's weightlifting that continues into the 1990s, continues into the 2000s, actually continues to the present day in many ways. If you look at even, say, Cheryl Hayworth, the uh, bronze medalist for America in the 2000s, the main media attention is she's seventeen and she's a heavyweight lifter. And you can imagine some of the comments that were made around that. If you go online and look at comments made about Maddie Rogers or you know Katie Vibert or Nye, as she was if, uh, when I showed you the clip, you will see there is still a conventional interest in beauty standards as we would normally understand them. So this matters, this is interesting. I could talk about it for ages, but I think the main takeaway is if you look at public discourses around this sport, We see these competing forces of women needing to fit conventional standards. We see sporting problems and issues for these women. And we also see broader issues caused by that Olympic association, especially around anabolic steroids. But if you want to know any more about me or my research, please do feel free to email me, tweet me or cyberstalk me. I'm FizC's study on Twitter. No idea why I chose that 10 years ago. And you see my email address up there. So thank you for your time, attention. Please throw any comments, criticisms, et cetera, my way. Thank you very much.
0: Well, thank you very much, uh, Connor. It's a really rich um, exploration of a sport that I know very little about, except having seen some women's weightlifting at the 2012 Olympics and just finding it a very kind of compelling piece of theatre as much as uh, sport. Um, I would definitely invite questions from, uh, from the audience. Um, if anybody has a question, you can either put it in the chat box or you can unmute yourself and um, ask Connor directly. Yeah, Jeff, can I ask a question? Yeah, go for it. Um, so uh, this is really tying in with something that I'm working on at the moment um, with judo for a change, you and I tying up. Um, and I'm interested in the uh, the judges, you know, saying about the male judges. Uh, when uh, are you aware of women starting to be allowed to be judges? Were they allowed to be? Um, how did that come about? Did it come about? <laughs> Uh, so, it,
1: yeah, it, it, it comes about, um, I suppose, at a national level, you know, in the national games where women from all over the United States beat in a competition, you start to see it from sort of the mid-1980s onwards and it becomes more prevalent from the 1990s onwards because the first generation of athletes are now going into administrative roles and you see that not just as you know weightlifting coaches an individual judy glenny who's another very important figure and the story goes on to be very important behind the scenes in trying to push for acceptance into the olympic movement and she'll go on then uh, to go to the olympics as an official to officiate the games i think the big disconnect and this is um this speaks to a broader issue with weightlifting cultures in the united states and the funding of weightlifting cultures is you can see legitimacy and safeguarding at an international level and a national level, far quicker than you can see it at a regional level. And especially because when you look at sort of weightlifting hubs in the United States, you know, you could see coffee's gym in Georgia is very important. There's a very important gym in Missouri. There's a very important gym in California. But spatially, there's a lot of distance between those gyms. So a lot of women going into this niche sport, were still competing in competitions against adolescents. Well, after a lot of the counterparts in the weightlifting hubs were. And I, there is a breakdown in safeguarding. There are more male judges in those sort of isolated competitions that women were entering. And it's interesting when you look at those one or two instances of women dropping out because they say, Well, I was competing in this, you know, X city or X town. There was no other women doing it. There was no other women in the platform. There's no other women in the competition and dropping away because it's clearly not a, a space for women. So I think it's interesting. You see it much quicker at a national than an international level. But the small numbers of it meant that regionally there were issues.
0: OK, yeah, brilliant. Thanks so much. Katie says, thank you, Connor. Did the US lead the way in women's weightlifting? And how did the sport develop in the UK, maybe in comparison?
1: Yeah, so I'll, I'll, talk, I'll talk about the US and go, go back to the UK because there's a very interesting uh, history in that as well. But the U.S. does lead the way for women's Olympic weightlifting in some very clear and obvious ways. So the U.S. is the first to create a national weightlifting uh, federation for women or the U.S., pardon me, is the first to create a national weightlifting federation for women. The U.S. is also the first to petition other countries to see is weightlifting happening within those countries. So Judy Glennie, who I previously mentioned with individuals like you know Robin Bird Goad begin to write to other nations to see, do you have a weightlifting federation for women? If so, can we speak to people? And they create these letter writing campaigns. There's a lot of letter writing campaigns by American athletes and administrators in the 1990s when it becomes clear that Olympic lifting for women isn't coming to the 96 games. So throughout this, the US is leading the way. The fact that the first World Weightlifting Championships happens at Daytona Beach in Florida, the IWF, the broader, the international government body says that this is in direct recognition of the fact that the U.S. has paved the way for women. Now, interestingly, as part of this story, China dominates women's Olympic weightlifting from the first international competition, 1987, to the present day. When Judy Lenny and the U.S. write to the Chinese Weightlifting Federation in the ni- mid-1980s, they're told we don't have women's Olympic weightlifting in this country. And a lot of the Soviet teams are very against women's Olympic weightlifting for a variety of reasons. And a lot of that does stem from fears about the East German swim team re-emerging against their nations. So the, the U.S. leads the way administratively and sort of, you know, ideologically, it is interesting how quickly other teams and other nations catch up on that, especially, you know, when you speak to Jim Schmitz, who was the U.S. coach, um, continues to coach, and he was a, an official with the USAW and other individuals, they'll say that the there's a lot of confusion around when China started to promote women's weightlifting because they immediately started to win competitions. In terms of the UK, when I talked about Pudgy Stockton, there is a British equivalent who came a little bit earlier called Ivy Russell. Ivy Russell was a female strong woman who helped institute the first women's, what we'd now call actually a powerlifting competition for women in the 1930s. She unfortunately lost her life in a car accident, but she went around the UK Competing and Northern Ireland actually competing against women in official um, legitimate strength competitions. In terms of women's weightlifting in the UK, I'm actually not sure of the nitty gritty, you know, in the same way that I am of the United States, where I can tell you about, you know, Bill Clark's competition in 1976. But what I can say is you do start to see it in the mid 1980s becoming more popular nationally and then obviously they'll be competing in the international competitions in the late 80s early 90s unfortunately for me i sort of went with the forerunner which is the us so i'm not sure about how it develops um in other countries around the world
0: okay so we've got another question from jonathan whites uh, jonathan asks where did funding come from for women's weightlifting
1: so it came from two strands Eventually, uh, which I hasten to add, so they did begin to get funded by the U.S. um, Weightlifting Federation in general. There's a very heated debate in the 1980s among the U.S. Weightlifting Federation about whether or not they will support and recognize women's weightlifting. So there is a very famous vote that is taken, and it is decided by one vote. The president of the U.S. um, Federation, Murray Levin, has the deciding vote as to whether or not the USAW will support and promote women's weightlifting. Now, when they decide to do that, it means that some money is then afforded to women's weightlifting in the United States. Now, it's not, it's not a huge amount of money. It's quite a poor amount of money if you listen to some of the, uh, or read some of the athletes during this time, but some money is being given to them. Now, it's not until the 1990s that the female weightlifters will be invited to like an Olympic weightlifting center in Colorado, to train and prepare for the Olympics. And that is when uh, women's Olympic weightlifting becomes part of the Olympics. So the first sort of round of funding comes from the USAW, the National Weightlifting Federation. When it becomes an Olympic sport, then more money will be directed to it. What needs to be stressed, though, is how little money is actually given to weightlifting within the United States during their golden era in the 14s and 50s. Bob Hoffman was effectively funding this through his profits from his own company. He was getting very little national sporting money for this, even though they're winning gold medals on a regular basis. So they are getting money. The money is very poor. The money is not commensurate uh, with oftentimes the reputation that weightlifting would have. It really starts to increase rapidly after Olympic recognition. And this, for me, is what makes women's weightlifting so fascinating, is that if you compare it with women's powerlifting or women's bodybuilding in the U.S., they're effectively signed, sealed and delivered sports by the mid-1980s at the latest. What I mean by that is there's national, international competitions. There's nowhere else they need to go. Even though women have national competitions, even though they have world competitions, they're not depicted as a full sport until they have Olympic recognition. And that final hurdle precludes
0: funding and attention you know, for many years. Okay, and <clears throat> excuse me, I think maybe the last question as we're getting towards um, the hour now. Um, Alec Hurley uh, posted the question. Thanks, Connor. Was the waiting game in the 1990s for Olympic-level female weightlifters impacted by the glamorization of female bodybuilders of the 1980s?
1: It's a really good question to ask, I think. Um it's funny you mentioned so, yeah, women's bodybuilding is glamorized in the 1980s. There's a sequel to Pumping Iron called Pumping Iron 2 The Ladies, which, if you thought my website, Physical Culture Study, was an unoriginal title, Pumping Iron 2 The Ladies is certainly up there. But that is a very glamorous, you know, depiction of women's bodybuilding. But there's a thread in that documentary about Bev Francis, who's a powerlifter turned bodybuilder, and she's seen to be too masculine. And it's actually quite a horrific thread throughout the movie. You see judges clawing her masculine. You see Bev Francis going on stage posing, leaving the stage, talking to her partner, and asking, "Did I look like feminine enough?" Because she's sort of internalized these uh, critiques. By the late 1980s, early 1990s, women's bodybuilding is going through a huge issue where it's being accused of, you know, all of the athletes looking too masculine, there's rampant anabolic drug use within the sport. You see some of that spilling over into women's Olympic weightlifting in the late 80s, early 90s, because there's clear evidence of women using performance-enhancing drugs, and there are allegations that it's defeminizing them, for want of a better phrase. Part of this waiting game, and you can see records, you know, uh, internal and external records and in newspapers as late as the 1990s saying there are drugs within sport if women take these drugs we know from women's bodybuilding what it will do to them and it's very interesting i think the part of that waiting game is i do think kicking it down the road a little bit because we really need to get our drug testing protocols in place because women, uh, olympic weightlifting as a sport is barely surviving in the 80s and 90s because of the repeated drug uh, failures by athletes. And there is a concern within the IWF and also just within weightlifting in general, that if women start failing drugs tests with the same prevalency as male athletes, this could be the death nail of the sport because you cannot have an Olympic sport that is so blatant about its drug use. At least other sports are much more subtle about it. Weightlifting is much more
0: honest uh, in many different ways. That's great. Um, uh, thank you very much, Connor. It's really fascinating, as I said, and a really comprehensive exploration of uh, women's weightlifting, not just in the 80s, but right back to its inception in the 1900s. Uh, just a quick reminder again of our next seminar, which is on Monday, the 12th of June, uh, with Thomas Campbell talking about the minor strike. And that is actually a live event. So if you're in London or near London, uh, we will be hosting that at the IHR in, in um, Russell Square. On that day um but uh once more connor thanks very much i look forward to seeing you at the next bssh meeting (laughs) and uh, and maybe reminiscing about the 2012 olympics i don't know (laughs) Uh, yeah thanks very much thank you thanks so much evan